Romans 7. I wanted to do it, but we're not going to do it. I'm going to read verse 1. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage of sin. Now, let me, it's an interesting verse, and it sets up the rest of chapter 7. We have been dealing with the book of Romans uh, with you know, Paul to start off with. It's a church he's never been to. And he was writing it kind of to introduce himself and his understanding of his doctrines so that he may come to Rome and hopefully use that as a springboard uh, to Spain and uh, Western Europe. It didn't work out that way. He went to Rome, but he wouldn't change. God got him there how God chose. And Paul deals with sin. At length deals with sin. And, this, and in chapter 7, he deals with the law. And that, it's not that the law is bad, the law is good. The law is God's revelation of what he expects, but the law can't say. And then he comes, and we saw the first half, this last, last half of chapter 7. And an interesting thing uh, occurs. Paul talks about being enslaved or in bondage to sin. And that causes some problems for many folks because Paul is, is saved. So how, if we are saved and been set free from sin, which we are, how can we then be slaves to sin? And all throughout the rest of this chapter, <coughs> Paul talks about the struggle that he has with sin. And over and over again, he says, I, 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 I. Which leads to some interesting understandings. So I want to share with you something, not just to help you understand this passage, but I hope will help you whenever you deal with some difficulties in Scripture. First of all, the, the normal reading of this passage, the logical reading, if you just sit down and read it, is Paul is talking about his struggle with sin. The problem people have is that Paul talks about being in bondage to sin, and if you are a follower of Christ and we have been freed from sin, how can we be in bondage to sin? So some people think that Paul is talking about what it is like to be uh, unregenerate. Now, we use the word regenerate, and unregenerate means saved and unsaved. But it's a technical term that has some precise meanings here. Is Paul talking about life as being saved or being unsaved? Because if you're saved, how can you be in bondage to sin and have all these problems? The problem with that is all throughout this passage, Paul says, I, 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 and it's present. And a normal understanding, a normal reading of this passage would make it appear logically that Paul is talking about himself. So the idea that he's talking about his life before being a Christian doesn't seem very satisfying. Some people think that Paul is talking about a person who, kind of like the Old Testament saints, was, was in essence a believer, but they hadn't you know, actually been totally regenerate yet. They hadn't, hadn't totally come to Christ. And so they're talking about people, and it's sort of between being regenerate and saved and being unsaved. And when I read that, and a lot of people, a lot of respective scholars think that way, it's really difficult because I don't know of a place between saved and unsaved. I don't know of a place between regenerate and unregenerate. You either are or you aren't. If you aren't saved, then you're unsaved. If you aren't regenerate, you are by definition unregenerate. There's just no gray area. And I understand what they're saying. I understand the discussion. But let me just take you back to the time that Paul wrote this close to 2,000 years ago. To the people sitting at Rome. Um, Rome, at the time he wrote this, was, had a large number of Christians. Uh, a lot of them from a Jewish background, so they would be very familiar with the law. And, they would, and, and a lot of them would have a decent amount of education. There were a lot of Gentile believers who came from pagan backgrounds who had not much understanding of the law at all. Some of them were possibly even slaves. Very, and, and a lot of them would have been very illiterate. They would have been very normal, average, everyday people, just like us. And so the book of Romans comes, and 
Most of them don't read, and they don't have copies of it because there's no printing press. The printing press is 1,500 years away. And so ideally, you would put it on scrolls, but when this letter comes, they just have one papyrus. And so you stand up and read. Can you imagine me standing up and reading all 16 chapters of Romans? Something, Romans would be hard for us. So people are going to hear it, and when they hear it, they're going to understand it within the context that makes most sense. They're not going to look at all the subtle nuances of doctrine. Now, what we do today, and we do this all the time, and I do it, and I understand to some degree, you have to. We'll take a book that we've had for 2,000 years, and we'll take all these thousands of commentaries and billions of words written about it, and we'll, and we'll break down a book, into, and we'll parse out every word and every tense and everything, and we come up with all these elaborate understandings. And I would simply suggest to you that the best understanding sometimes is just the woman you sit down and read and say, that makes most sense. We do it all the time. For instance, in the book of Revelation. We have a tendency in America in the 21st century to sit down in 21st century America, look at the book of Revelation, think about our context, and I'm you, our world, and we read all of that into the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia Minor who was experiencing persecution, getting to the point of death, written so that they could understand it, but the people persecuting them would not because of all of the rich symbolism. And they were going to sit down, and this book was supposed to give them hope. And I can promise you, they had no idea and no thoughts of what was going to happen in 21st century America. They didn't know about us, and they didn't care about us. But we do that all the time. We do it in the Old Testament. We'll take the prophecies. I think Joe this past week here preached from the, the book of Jeremiah. Interesting choice that Joe chose Jeremiah. We appreciate him doing that. And uh, it's a joke because I told Joe he had to preach from Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And, uh, but, but Jeremiah, when those prophecies came out, when he spoke it, they were to people primarily in exile or close to being in exile. They were in, we've got to understand it in their times. I say this because the best thing to do is say, I think when you read Romans... And you read this passage, it sounds like Paul's talking about himself, especially since he does the same thing in Galatians, and especially since I have the same struggles. When I read verses 14 through 25 in Romans, I'm saying, that is me. I get it. That's, I, I'm with you, Paul. I don't want to name the sin, but I'm there. Look what he says. We know that the law is spiritual. The laws of God is spiritual. I am a flesh, sarks, flesh and blood. In Galatians, he talks about the flesh. Throughout Scripture, he talks about the sins of the flesh. Paul does. I'm sold in the bondage of sin. Now, that causes people heartache because Paul is no longer under sin. Paul has been free. But the term sold is written in the Greek. Now, you don't know this, but the people in Romans would hear this. It's a perfect tense. The perfect tense speaks of a past act with present consequences. So Paul is saying, I was sold in the past as a bondage of sin. And the present tense of now, I still live with the consequences of. People back in the 1800s, when, uh, when they were free from, from slavery, while they were free, many of them still carried the baggage of slavery. They may have carried scars, may have been emotional damage, they were poor, many of them had no places to go. They may be technically free, and they are, but there was still certain amount of baggage, of bondage. Paul is saying, yes, I am free, and the law is spiritual, but I still have a certain amount of baggage because I was sold into sin. You know, we're free from sin, but the effects of sin doesn't leave us. I've known many, an alcoholic that was saved and died as a result of their years as an alcoholic, of drinking. 
the effects of that slavery and that bondage didn't leave them. They were saved. They were Jesus now. But they died far too young. I have many family members that died far too young because of alcoholism. I don't know if they're all saved. But, you know, I know my dad at the end of his life completely repented of all that. It didn't matter. He still died way too young because he drank way too much. Look what Paul says in verse 15. I get this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing that I hate. You ever find yourself like, Lord, I don't want this sin in my life. Deliver me from it. And you keep battling that sin? I, I, I can't. I listen, I don't mind saying this because it's, it's true to some degree. I, I'm an impatient guy. And when I get behind the wheel of my Acura tail tech that goes from zero to 60 in about one second, I'm ready to move. If I pass you and, and quickly, please don't be offended. You're in my way. And I get so impatient. I'm saying, Lord, i got to have patience. I want to be patient with this person. The light turned green. Would you get out of the way? The only time I don't do that is on Sunday, going from Miranda to here, because I'm inevitably behind church members, and God gives me an amount of grace I cannot explain. I don't pass people coming here. But I know who you are, and if I ever get a chance during Monday through Saturday, I might. But there are a lot of sins far worse. There, there are things in our lives that we struggle with. This is why this passage is so real. This is why I don't want to downplay the significance of what Paul is saying. Even though I'm a follower of Christ, sin still beckons me, calls me, chases after me. Verse 16 says, I do the very thing I don't want to do. I agree with the law, confessing law is good. I agree. The law tells me how I ought to live. I agree with that. It doesn't save me. Paul, Paul, I agree. I want to do that. But in doing the things that I know is wrong, I'm admitting the law is right. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In the past life, it was me because I was, I was sold into sin completely, but now I'm a follower of Christ, but still, sin still has its grip. So it's not me as the follower of Christ, but it's the sin that's doing it. Now, he's not, he's not removing responsibilities, but what he's trying to get a point is this. Sin has such a grip on life. I, I think, and I've really come to realize this in the last couple of years, we downplay sin a lot. We know we have to be saved from it. I'm preaching this Sunday, and I'm preaching out of a passage that deals with sin. But sin is a cruel, vicious, damning part of our life. And it damages us. And I know we're saved. And I know we're being sanctified every day and all that stuff. And I know we're growing. And, and some of you are wonderful, outstanding people that have no problems. I get that. But most of the Christians I know, whether they admit it or not, they struggle. That old self just keeps calling them. This is what Paul's saying. This is why he has spent the better part of six chapters talking about sin. How Adam brought sin into the world. How Christ came and brought salvation. I mean, he's talking about this. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, there is sin. He's talking about the depravity of the mind. He talks about the abandonment of what God wants. He says in, in 528, while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We were in the midst of just pouring our lives into sin when Jesus died. 
425 says, Christ died for our transgressions. Our sinning against God. Romans 3.23 says, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. It's a constant reminder of just how sin is. And here he says, even as a Believer, because in verse 7, I have verse 7 1 right above it. There's a title that said, Believers United in Christ. Verse 7 is talking about believers. As a believer, I don't want to do it. Sin is just dwelling in me. Verse 18 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, is Paul overstating this son? Yes, obviously. There is some hyperbole in this. He's trying to drive him a point. And the point is, left to my own devices, my flesh has nothing good. This is why it's so important to understand that when we say we have done nothing to earn our salvation, we've got to take that serious, that we have done nothing. We are infected with sin. There is nothing good about us. I, I am preaching out of a Genesis, um, Christmas message out of Genesis 6, 5 this week. Started my Christmas season. And, in, and it says this. This is God talking to Moses and Moses writes. The inclinations of our heart are only of evil all of the time. Outside of a relationship with God. On our own. The inclinations of who we are are bent towards the most evil and wicked things and only evil and wicked things all of the aspect of our life. That's God's assessment. It's not our assessment. And I know there's plenty of guys preaching, oh, yeah, we're basically good and we try to do good things and we'll talk all about this. And you get to God and God just says, no, nah, no, nah, it's not that way. And Paul He's reminding us of this, and he's even talking about this unbelievable struggle. Verse 19, I get this point. I get this is through and through. The good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I not want to do. Have you ever prayed, God, don't let me do this? God, keep me from this? And what happens? You do it anyway. Why? Why is God failing? Why ain't God doing his job? Because I have such a desire for sin in my freedom, I ask God, and then I, I go ahead and do it anyways. I, I do that. And so do all of you. Every one of you do it. And the older you are, the more you've done it. <laughs> so here's what he says in verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, it's not me. I'm no longer the one doing it. It's sin dwelling in me. Now, it's not, it's not me as a follower of Christ. He's, he's recognizing we, we have a different life. And, pl- and there's plenty of places Paul talks about how we ought to live. So we got, we got Paul all over the place. Galatians, Ephesians, even in Romans, telling us how we ought to live. But what he's trying to get through is this. Sin sometimes, even though we have been delivered from sin, sin still can dominate the life of a Christian. So, even though we're saved, we have to keep striving. So he's going to get to the part where we need in just a few moments. But we, just, we need to understand we're not immune from this.
Verse 21 says, Paul says this, I find the principle then that evil is present in me, the one he wants to do good. He wants to do good. He's a follower of Christ. He wants to honor God. But evil, the principle of evil. Now, the nature of evil may not be in him. Notice what he says, the principle of evil. The reality of evil is there. I am, a, I am a new creation. Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul writes that. So he's not going back on that. But that does not mean that the principle, the reality, the influence of sin still exists. <laughs> Verse 22. I joyfully concur with the law of God about the inner man. He is, I, I'm going to agree with God. By the way, I, I like how he says that. He's talking about the, all the sin, and then he says, I'm joyfully occurring with, uh, agreeing with God, concur with God, about the enemy. We, sh- we should always agree with God, right? I mean, shouldn't that? It's a pretty good place. I say this all the time. If you're at odds with God, you're, you're in trouble. And I am, uh, it, it amazes me that people who have grown up with an access to God's word and who call themselves Christians will pick up scripture where it clearly says things to us and they will disagree with what God tells us. Or they'll disagree with what Paul writes. All Paul's doing is what the Holy Spirit tells him. Or they'll disagree with Jesus said. Some evil people even go and say, well, in the red letter, you know, in your Bible, Pilate's red letter, they'll come back and say, well, Jesus said this, but Jesus probably really didn't say that They add it. How do they know that? The only thing we know about Jesus is in Scripture. How can you say, well, Jesus said this, this is not consistent, this other thing he probably didn't say, because it's not consistent. Now, every time I hear that, and, 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 and some of the circles I deal with, it's just a prevalent thing, and it's unbelievable. And I'm like, how idiotically, moronically foolish can you be? You are disagreeing with Christ. To the point you're saying Jesus didn't say what the Holy Spirit said Jesus said. Of course, they don't believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible either. Do you understand how foolish it is? It is far better to agree with God joyfully, even over the things that are ugly about us. I have no problem believing in the total depravity of man. I don't believe that man is inherently good. I don't believe that man is inherently okay. I believe man is sinful and wicked and depraved. Because of two reasons. One, I've seen it and experienced it. And two, God says it. I'm going to go with him on that. Paul says, I joyfully concur. But he says, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Isn't that amazing? I agree with God's law. It's good. But there is the law of sin. And the law of sin and, 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 and the law of God, he says, is waging war in my mind. You ever feel like there's a war going on in your life? That's why. You ever just struggle and say, God, release me from this sin? I've done that. And there's just war raging. And here's the thing. Look at people then who are not followers of Christ. And understand, there's really not a war raging. They've already given over to sin. 
I'm adamant about this. I get, the older I get, the more the more the older I get, things clarify. Some things become cloudy, but some things clarify, and the simpler my theology gets. The older I get, the simpler my theology becomes. Because God just does that. Mainly because I forget things too, so I have to simplify it. It gets complicated. I never expect people who are lost to act like they're saved. They have already surrendered to sin. The war is within us. So what I want people who are already surrendered to sin to do is engage in the battle. And how do I get lost people to engage in the battle? I introduce them to Jesus. Now I don't want to I'm going to point out sin. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've never shied away from pointing out sin. And, 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 but my purpose in pointing out sin is to help them understand what God expects. Not so I'll feel better about condemning them. Because when I read this, <laughs> how can I ever condemn a lost person when I'm struggling in the battle as a saved person? They've already given in, okay. I'm fighting it. And I still give in to sin. And see, if you, if you take that aspect out of it and just say Paul's talking then about people who are unregenerate, then you and I, you and I are in serious trouble because everybody in here when he reads that identifies with this. And if you don't, you're lying to God in yourself. Because I identify with this, and none of you are that much better than me. So I, I get what Paul's saying. I see that struggle. It's a war waging, he says. And notice what he says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? Because he considers this a death. And in verse 25, for the Christian, this is for the Christian, not the lost. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. He's what he's saying in essence. I am thankful to Jesus that I am fighting the battle against sin. Because if I wasn't fighting the battle against sin, I'd already be condemned in that sin. So he's saying, I'm going to do all this through Jesus. Now, here's what it means. You and I have to bring everything back to Christ. So when we fight this battle, the problem is too often I'm the one fighting it. So when I'm, when I'm back to my driving illustration, and it's, I, I just find it humorous that on Sundays I never ever have a problem with my impatience or my temper with driving. It never did. It's just like somehow I know I'm in this holy, sanctified place, my car, where I, I'm not doing that. It's like, you know, Jesus take the wheel, carry underwood stuff, you know. But something happens that day. I guess the way I look at things and I have to preach three messages and where I am with the Lord, that I have totally put my confidence in Christ to such a degree as I understand that he is absolutely controlling my life. That why can't I do that every other day of the week? I sometimes think, God, why, why, why is it this way? What, what's wrong with this picture? And the 
What's wrong with the pictures? I live with this fear of messing up when I preach so much that I'm willing to set aside all those parts of my life out of absolute fear of angering God because I messed up, because I sinned and all that. And I don't have that fear the rest of the week. I don't know what that says about me. But it says, and I'm right here where Paul is, and what I need to do Monday through Saturday in all aspects of my life, not just driving, is an understanding that I need to reside in Jesus Christ our Lord. The battle has to be fought, not by me, by Christ. And that's the problem. The difference between regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration means I'm saved. Sanctification is the process of living out that saved life in a way that honors and glorifies God. To be sanctified is to be made holy. It comes to the Greek word uh, agios. To be holy, to be set apart. It is a process. Regeneration is a one-time act. To be saved. We are in the process of living out a life that is righteous and holy and set apart to God. And the only way we can live that life is through the same way we find salvation. Through a total dependence on Christ. So this is what basically... When I look at chapter 7, in light of what earlier said in chapter 7, we saw two weeks ago in this. My failure to totally trust Christ in every aspect of my life leads to a war with sin that I find myself fighting. Because in those moments when I'm totally surrendered to Christ, I don't have to fight that battle. So what Paul is telling us is a very real experience in all of our lives. It is part of that sanctifying process. And we need to totally rely upon Christ in everything in order to overcome that battle. So, when I come to these passages, and I have certain theological convictions, I am reminded quite often, that I must never let my theology and what I believe interfere with my understanding of what Scripture says. And I must always make sure that Scripture determines my belief. And that, not that my belief determines what Scripture says. I battle every day, as do you, as a follower of Christ, with sin that wages war within me. Because I do not totally and completely hand my life over to Christ the way I should. That is a struggle. But the good news is, if we didn't have that struggle, it would mean we weren't followers of Christ. So I can say then, with all confidence, in this one area, I live like Paul. <laughs> you ever live like Paul? No. Well, I do here. So me and Paul are on the same page, and I feel good in that sense. I can be with Paul. Y'all have any questions or comments you'd like to make? Yes, sir. Yes. 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 It's an extra point. And oftentimes, mate, the fact that Paul talks about hating, not wanting to do it, lost, unregenerate people never talk about that. That's why... 
very few people accept the idea that this is unregenerate. What they accept, that this is the loss, is that it's some sort of place before salvation, which is just kind of mind-boggling. Any place before salvation is lost. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You can't hate sin unless you're a follower of Christ. Yeah. Yes. And he says, you gotta, I love his wording, he goes, take hold of yourself, man. He's written in Holy Bridge. Yes. He, he says, you gotta interject truth into those conversations, but not be passive. Those conversations not be passive. I'm impressed that you quoted D. Martin Lord Jones and cited the book. Uh, Troy will probably uh, look that up to make sure you're right. He does that a lot. <laughs> Troy has all the books and t- tapes of D. Martin Lloyd Jones. This is a joke because he died before all that happened. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, that fact that there's that war rage, and he's right, we've got to take hold of it, and we take hold of it by surrendering to Christ, which Jones would have absolutely said in 100%. He's correct. There is that battle and that war that rages within the Father of Christ. I'm always leery and weary of Christians who tell me they don't struggle with sin. I don't believe them and want nothing to do with them because I am concerned that that complacency would infect me. Or make me look really bad in the process. Anything else? Going once. Going twice. Sold to the lady on the second row. She's an eight. She's a nine. She's a ten.